For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Yes, profound and wondrous dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million compass. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everybody. So here we are at Ebenezer Church with our in-person pop-up Zendo. And hello, everybody online. Uh, We're very happy to see you as well. So some of us at Ancient Dragon Zengate have been exploring compassion over the last five weeks or so. And... We've been using as a text to inform our exploration chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra, which is called the Universal Gateway of Kanzayan, Hearer of the Cries of the World. Kanzayan is one of the bodhisattvas that is present in our practice a bodhisattva being a person who, after having some realization of enlightenment, instead of getting out of the loop of samsara, makes a choice to come back to realms of living beings to help other sentient beings also achieve enlightenment. So the bodhisattva of compassion originally was called Avalokiteshvara. And depending on what cultural reference you have for practice of Zen Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, um, in Japan, that bodhisattva is called Kanzayan. In China, it's called Guanyin. So you'll hear different references and names that represent this bodhisattva, but it's the same bodhisattva originally Avalokiteshvara, that represents the ideal of compassion. So originally, when we started looking at this text, it invokes this bodhisattva, this text. So basically it says when someone's in trouble or when you're in trouble, just invoke Avalokiteshvara, invoke Kanzayan. Kanzayan will appear and help the person out. And there's couplets in the, and we, we will chant it today, but there are couplets in the sutra of different kinds of situations that any person could possibly be in, some fantastic, some realistic. And Kanzayan, once invoked, will appear and help the situation out immediately. Because this being is of such great compassion, it just wants to help. It wants to help any kind of sentient being in a moment of distress. Here are the cries of the world. 
meaning that this bodhisattva hears all the cries of suffering, hears all the different situations and responds. One aspect of this, though, is to remember that hearing the cries of the world for us as practitioners is, is an important part of our practice. Because when we think of helping, we think of doing right away, right? Oh, we have to do something. We have to go somewhere. We have to present something. But actually hearing and deep listening is a very, very important component of the development of compassion. So I just wanted to bring that up in the middle of all these fantastic things that could possibly happen to all of us. That deep listening is considered kind of a baseline for the development of compassion and compassionate response in the realms of living beings. So that was one thing we looked at. A lot of people around the world as Buddhists practice invoking Kanzayan, Guanyin, Avalokiteshvara as part of their Buddhist practice, and that might be their only practice. And um, there could be a whole Dharma talk about how that is used as a vehicle for practice, but that's not really what I wanted to focus on today. Then we explored the relationship between compassion and our zazen. How does sitting in zazen help us develop compassion? And is it something that is developed, or does the zazen actually help us realize that the compassion was always there. So is the compassion our natural state? And the zazen just actually brings that out for us. And we kind of looked at that a little bit and had a couple discussions about that. And that's very appropriate for us who just sat in meditation for 35 minutes. But I actually don't want to focus on that today either in my talk, (laughs) so I'm going to move on. But what I did want to focus on, and it seems like I'm making a jump, but hopefully as um, this talk unfolds, you'll see I'm not. There are also, in our practice, development of characteristics called paramitas. And... Generally, bodhisattvas are considered to have developed these characteristics. And that's one of the reasons the bodhisattvas make this choice to stay in the realm of suffering beings and help other beings realize enlightenment. And through their practice over time, because Chants tell us, different chants, different sutras tell us the bodhisattvas were as we are right now. So they're not some, they're not beings that were all of a sudden born into this enlightened state or struggled a little bit and got it. They were humans like us at some point in their samsaric existence and they were other things as well. So through their practice and through the times of living that they've experienced, And when they came to practice, they developed these characteristics. So these paramitas are generally there's considered to be six or ten, depending on what you look at. But I want to focus on six because let's not bite off more than we could chew. (laughs) But anyway, generosity, um, 
ethics, sometimes translated as morality, sometimes translated as discipline, patience, effort, meditation, and wisdom are the six paramitas or six characteristics that could be developed through our practice or sometimes called the six perfections. What I wanted to look at in relation to these six paramitas is how compassion is the underlying field in which they all develop. And until I personally started looking at compassion, I didn't really think about it that much because I looked at all of these as kind of separate things that at different times in my life might develop depending on situations or depending on the circumstances. But before we look at that a little more closely, I wanted to read a little bit of the sutra. With this in mind, and this is what we've been doing as we've been looking at the sutra chant, is I'm like, where, where in the chant does it go back to maybe talking about the paramitas? Because as you'll see later when we do chant the sutra, it's very fantastic and there's so much there. There's so much imagery there. There's so much action there. There's so many ideas there. So I just pulled a part out of it that I want to read for you. And maybe I'm making a leap, maybe not, but I'll share it with you and you can decide what you think. This is part of the sutra chant. It's part of the chapter 25 Lotus Sutra chapter that is about the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara. When living beings suffer hardships, burdened by immeasurable woes, the power of Kanzayan's wondrous wisdom can relieve the suffering of the world. Fully endowed with miraculous powers, wildly, widely practicing wisdom and skillful means, in every land, in all directions, in no realm does Kanzayan not appear. In all the various evil destinies of hell beings, hungry ghosts, and animals, the sufferings of birth, old age, sickness, and death, all are gradually erased by Kanzayan, whose true regard, serene regard, far-reaching wise regard, regard with compassion and loving kindness, is ever longed for, ever revered, unblemished, serene radiance, benevolent sun, dispelling all gloom. Kanzayan can subdue the wind and fire of woes, clearly illuminating all the world. The precepts of compassion roar like thunder. The kind heart is wondrous as great clouds. So in there, I felt there was conversation about the development of some of these paramitas, some of these characteristics. But the line that really jumped out at me the most is the precepts of compassion, the precepts of compassion, roar like thunder. So now if we go back to those paramitas, generosity is the first one. Now, mind you, just because they're laid out linearly, this doesn't mean that they're developed linearly. As Westerners, we just tend to think of progression and evolution as a linear prospect. 
And sometimes it can be difficult for us with Asian disciplines to understand that the development is circular. But for lack and for lack of a better way, and because we are Americans, I'll go through these as they're linearly put out, but then we'll rope back to the circular aspect of it. Generosity. We know this is giving, but we know one of the traps of giving is giving to make yourself feel better. When true compassion is developed, can we give without the idea of someone even thanking us in return? Can we give without the idea of patting ourselves on the back because we are so generous? Can we give without the idea of somebody else patting us on the back because we are so generous? With true compassion, hopefully the ability to give is just the ability and desire to give and nothing more. Morality or ethics. You know, this was interesting because I was thinking, you know, um, emptiness is also an underlying concept of our practice, meaning that there really is nothing here to grab onto. Um, but we get into a lot of difficult discussions with emptiness when we talk about morality because we don't want to say that anything goes. Everything's okay. But again, that's a whole nother Dharma talk. But when I'm thinking about how compassion can underline ethics or morality, if I truly feel compassion for all living beings, then I personally don't want to harm anybody, regardless of what they've done. Regardless of what they have done, I personally don't want to harm people. And I'm just going to leave it at that because that alone is really a lot to think about. Because when we find something wrong, and all of us have a personal idea of what we think is right or wrong, and some of us get generally offended by some of it, rightly so, rightly so, it often can be hard not to feel like we want to lash out then and harm the people who we think are causing harm. So I'm thinking if we really have a field of compassion developed, how can we start to respond to things that we don't think are right without the desire to harm the people doing the wrong? Patience. This is my number one because I've been working on patience. So for me personally, this is number one. This is the first one in the linear progression. I've been working on patience since I was about four years old. Seriously. And, and I just brought this up um, because we had Rohatsu Sashin, and I was saying, I know I really need to do a longer sitting when I get, I start getting very impatient with the people around me. You know, I'm also a teacher. I start getting impatient with the students. If someone says something I've heard a million times, I snap back at them. You know, we all do this to everybody. We see a lot, right? We find ourselves getting impatient. When we started looking at compassion, I realized that it's not impatience. It's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of compassion that makes me impatient. Effort. I like the effort one. This is just my favorite personally because I like to do things and I see that effort is doing things. So I think that if we develop compassion, doing things is not a problem because we happily go about finding ways 
I like finding the small ways in my life because I can handle that on how we can help other people. And they present themselves over and over again throughout our day. I'm really not a crusader. I'm not someone who likes to take on large causes. I really don't. Some people do, and we need people who do that, and that's fantastic. It's, it's necessary. I like the effort of getting up, getting out of my house, putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what happens. And every now and then I can respond to something with compassion. And sometimes I'm actually surprised that I can. <laughs> I'm like, wow, all right. I can give without worrying about what this person's going to do with what I give. And, oh, man, that must have been from my practice, you know. Um. Now the others get more difficult. Meditation, we already talked about that, but, you know, it's hard to sit down consistently and meditate. Everybody in this room knows that. Everybody online knows that. But we're making the effort to do it. And hopefully, here we go back to that circular development. Hopefully, if we could just do that. So sometimes we don't have to figure out some kind of campaign or how to respond even as we're going down the street to get a cup of coffee. But sometimes if we can just consistently sit on the cushion, we can have faith that all of these things will develop in their good time, in our good time, the way they're meant to develop for us with our Dharma position. And then, of course, the last one is the peace de resistance, <laughs> wisdom. As, praj, as prajna or wisdom cuts through mistaken beliefs about reality, compassion naturally arises. So that's, you could tell, that's not my words. Because wisdom, I don't know. But wisdom supposedly helps us find the appropriate response as we go through our life. So the rest of all of these kind of fall into line with wisdom. But as you could see with meditation, if all of these develop and greater wisdom develops, it's a circular evolution. And sometimes maybe we feel we're operating on eight cylinders. We have a great practice. I feel patience, generosity, ethics, discipline, meditation, wisdom. And right when we feel we're operating on eight cylinders, something happens in our life, and we feel we've never practiced at all. At all. And we wonder what happened to that wonderful feeling of operating on eight cylinders. And then we wonder if maybe we just didn't know what a rough life was until this thing happened that put us right back to where we felt we started from. I'm just throwing that out there to stress that it's circular. We can't judge ourselves by what happened yesterday, and we can't judge ourselves by what's happening maybe tomorrow. Sometimes we can't even judge ourselves by what's happening now. We just have to be present with it and be the person we are in that moment. Hopefully, if we have developed some compassion, we can be the most compassionate with ourselves.
what do you guys think online? Is that enough? No, we're not. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have nothing left to give. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope uh, this will bring up some great conversation. So now I'd love to open the floor up to everyone here at Ebenezer and everybody. Everyone online, you can um, use the raise hand function, or you can also type a question in chat. Just on mute. Or you could go like this. <laughs> uh, Deborah is doing that. <laughs> that see, I swear, if you just look this way, you'll see it out of your peripheral vision, because we're always training. <laughs> Deborah, and then Paul. Hi, Deborah. Oh, hi. I'm laughing because I'm just supporting the waving. So, <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I don't have to come up with a comment or a question, but yeah, I really appreciate your, thank you so much, Paula. I really appreciated your reflection and your enthusiasm about this wonderful sutra. And it's, um, it just, I'm in your class and each time we speak, I learn more about its um, meaning and import in my life and in the world. It's very rich. I just wanted to support the richness of this one uh, chapter in the Lotus Sutra to come back to and connect to over time. But as I was listening to you today, and I'm, maybe we, it, it disconnected because of Zoom, but I, was, um, I, I just wanted to support that ethics might also connect to our using the precepts. And you may have said that, but I, I am not sure because I had some interruption in the connection. You know, the... the, 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 the um, I want to say the eight or I think there might be up to 13 great precepts. So I'm just mm -hmm. supporting that. Did you comment on that? I wasn't. No. Sure. So Deborah, say more. Say more. Please. No, it just really came alive for me that um, as, as the Paraminas can be a very encompassing, wonderful, wonderful teaching. And the concepts are very large. And um, if we look at ethics, it's not just, you know, and the precepts are this wonderful tool to practice with and live with that are not, um, you know, necessarily judgmental, but guidelines as well as, you know, just actually very compassionate in my opinion. So I'm the, thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Paul, I think Paul, you might be muted still. Uh, thank you, Paula, for a very, uh, very skillful and uh, illuminating talk. I, I, I deeply appreciate your your skill. Um, I just want to say something about bodhisattvas that seems to be coming up a lot lately, and because we live in this culture that we live in, we have a tendency to think of bodhisattvas as celebrities of, of celebrities, put them on a on a higher pedestal, and. I don't think, I think that's a, a, I think it's a delusionary view of, of bodhisattvas. I think we should think more about bodhisattvas as, as something that is, that we all have some, all have a part of. We're not all, it's not like you are a bodhisattva or you aren't a bodhisattva. It's, it's a tendency that we all have. And some people have more than others. And some, and some people awaken the mind to see, the, to hear the cries of the world. And I think that's a very important part of our practice. And just, just hearing, just keeping our ears open 
hearing them, not blotting them out, being not different, not separating yourselves from the cries is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a step in the right direction. Also, I like to think of um, the word compassion always makes me a little uncomfortable because it has a sense of, of me and you of being compassionate for somebody the way it's used in English. So uh, empathy, I always like the word empathy better. So not to see yourself different as others. Um, that I think that is a key, a key, a, a, a key to, to developing that the, the mind of a bodhisattva. Anyway, thank you very much for your talk. I, th I thought it was very illuminating. Thank you. A bit about one of the other chants that we do called the um, Ehe Kosu Hatsu Ganman. And it, it brings up in that chant that the Buddhas and ancestors were once as we are, and we will become Buddhas and ancestors. And I think this brings up um, points to that point that we're not different than Bodhisattvas. They're not celebrities. They're not somebody outside of ourselves. They're, they're, there is not a dualistic component to it because they were once as we are and we will become them. And if we can learn not to separate ourselves from it. And I think um, this also goes back to using Kanzeyan as some people do as invoking the Bodhisattva, but invoking the Bodhisattva is actually you using the Bodhisattva as a mirror of yourself. I don't personally practice that way. You know, a lot of us have upbringings in uh, either Christian backgrounds, Catholicism, um, Judaism is not so much this way. But in Catholicism, you use a lot of saints and imagery with your practice. And some of us has, have pushed against that. And that's why we find ourselves here practicing Buddhism. So I don't normally practice like that, invoking a being. But I do understand from our zazen when we face the wall, there's um, teachings that say when you face the wall, there, you, there, there's you facing a screen and the screen is reflecting back at you. So I imagine the idea of using an archetype as a vehicle for practice is actually part of that idea. It does, that doesn't necessarily work for me, though, because I do feel a dualism there that you brought up, Paul, and I don't like feeling that. Um, but yes, I mean, there's a lot of that in what you said, and, and thank you so much for bringing out those aspects of it. I deeply appreciate that. Brian. Bryant. I, I was like, I know it's like Brian, and then I couldn't remember. <laughs> Bryant. <laughs> thank you very much for a very good talk, a very important topic. Um, I think sometimes in various traditions, certain things are emphasized over other aspects of the path. And sometimes maybe there's a conception that, oh, well, I'll get around to ethics, but at first I'm going to focus on my meditation mm -hmm. and this, that. And I love the way One 
jewel on it. And I was going to make sort of a, a on the wisdom component. Why is that important? This is, you know, there's various terms for it. Started with the original Buddha and the teaching of Anatta, no self. So non-duality has been kind of the golden thread, as it were, in the whole development. And when you have the ability to step outside of concepts of self and other, um, and maybe not even attempt to do that, but when it just happens uncontrived and effortless, such as when you see a person in front of you tripping on the sidewalk, your impulse is to just reach out and help them. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh said, when your left hand touches a hot stove, your right hand immediately cares for it. You don't think about it, it's just helping. There's no self, there's, there's no right hand, left hand, there's no, there's just helping. And I think of the transcendent paramitas in that way. That it's not something we're ever trying to do. We do that in our training. But the best, the better we get at that training, at, at sort of letting go, which is what our zazen practice really is. It's letting go of thoughts, letting go in the moment, and just letting stuff arise and pass. When we do that, as it says in the Diamond Sutra, third chapter, if bodhisattvas conceive of a being, if bodhisattva, meaning, oh, there's a bodhisattva and I'm over here, or, you know, if you don't think bodhisattva at all, if you just help when it's appropriate, mm -hmm. when the universe presents you with an appropriate situation for action, that's how I conceive of the transcendent paramitas as, you know, Patience. When someone is taking a long time in front of you in line, as long as you conceive of yourself as I'm here and there they are, impatience will arise. But if you can stay in the letting go of those thoughts and mm -hmm. self with other and just have compassion that, well, I've been in this situation too, and I wouldn't want the person behind me pissed off at me. You know, so that's a very difficult thing to do because our whole lives, our culture trains us to think of getting more for me by, you know, helping you over there. But when we get to the point, and it's, you know, not easy, sometimes it happens naturally, when we just help, when we're just patient. And there's no me being patient, there's just patience, there's just help, there's just concentration, there's just ethical behavior. Uh, that to me is, is sort of the bodhisattva ideal. Mm -hmm. You're not even conceiving of a bodhisattva anymore. Uh, and I'll shut up now. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Or helping just to help without having to see a result of your helping. Without conceiving of gift, giver, or yeah. giving. Just there's the action. And then going back to emptiness right away. Well, I once there's Zen, the response. The Zen story, there's so many that I found amazingly helpful that I thought were just cool stories years ago when I read them. 
The two monks, the master and the novice, they come to the river and there's a woman and the master just picks her up and helps her across the river and puts her down and they keep walking. And the novice after a while says, we're not supposed to touch women. How could you do that? And he says, well, I left her at the river. Are you still holding her? Nice. So I see that as a teaching story about that selfless giving and compassion. A need arose, the master did it, and he moved on, flowed on. And the monk, the novice, was still clinging to conceptions of man, woman, rules, beings, and that, you know, there was no selfless helping in the moment, which the master embodied or invoked. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Very important topic and very well said. Hi. David. Thank you so much, Paula. You mentioned the... Hello? You mentioned the fantastic things in the, in the chapter 25 that, were, that, that is about to be chanted. You know, things... I, I... I forget how they go, but like you could be about to be condemned to death or bandits are about to kill you. And all you have to do is call on Tanzeo and, and, and you'll be rescued. And, and they're wonderful. And I, 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 love them and they're delightful. Um, and, and so I, I know that you've been studying them, but well, in the sense of everybody knows that people get sentenced to death. Well, I will say, I don't consider those situations the fantastical ones. I consider the ones where dragons are breathing fire on you and stuff like that, the fantastical ones. Unfortunately, because what you bring up is very real to me, that any of those awful things could happen to me. You know, I could find myself in jail. I could find myself sentenced to death. I could find myself being attacked by a band of thieves. Um, so I don't see those as the fantastical ones. But I understand what you're you're asking. Um, you know, I give that a lot of thought because that is real to me that these things could happen. So how how does compassion into that for if something that awful happened to me? then how could it seem like it's not happening then? And I, I can't tell you, I completely understand it, but it goes back to what Bryant is saying. If through my practice, I have felt an experience of emptiness, even in that worst situation when it's happening to me, okay, because it's easy to say if it's happening to somebody else, right? But even in that situation, like even if I was wrongly accused and I was going to be put to death, that my, my practice would be strong enough that I could find the emptiness in that situation and know that our lives are one of delusion and the truth of that situation would not be revealed to me through delusion, but through wisdom of emptiness. Now that's asking an awful lot, isn't it? And I highly doubt if that happened to me right now, I don't think that I could say my practice is strong enough 
that I would be able to have compassion for the situation and myself, and it would all be okay. But I certainly hope I could get there, you know. But I think that's what it means. But that's a big ask. So when you have the sutra and it's just Kansai is going to appear and it's going to be okay, that sounds pretty easy. But I don't really think it's that easy. So I hope that answers your question. So I'd rather think of the dragons and stuff, actually. <laughs> That's a little easier. Tygen might disagree because he's been practicing longer. So he might say, no, the dragons are harder than the others. <laughs> and David Weiner's hand is up now. Hello, David Weiner. David, are you able to mute myself so I could speak? Thank you, Paula, for a very, very uh, wonderful talk and enlightening talk, really, truly. Um, you know, something that you just said is what, what sparked me. Um, it's not that we're being rescued by from the thieves or, you know, we're, our chains are, are, are being taken away, but maybe what is happening and how I see it a little bit is to have an equanimity within that situation to not be holding hatred, to not be, you know, seeing uh, others as, as attacking us, but that's just a situation that is. And um, it's kind of like there's this old Zen story about how a robber came into a a monk's house, and and he took everything, including the monk's clothes. And the monk, who kept on meditating, and said, "Too bad I couldn't give him this lovely moon that was shining in the sky." Um, you know, to have that type of equanimity in the situation, I think, is really important. And that's what the precepts are taking us to: to uh, to have care for others. And, and, you know, we talk about compassion, empathy, and I'm, I'm taking it in another ver, another adjective, care, you know, or verb. Uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an adjective. It's a verb. It's how we live our lives and to care for people. And even when some, something negative happens to us, do we have the the patience and the wisdom and the the sense of compassion that underlies them both to just say, this is what happened, this is part of their delusion, and I am who I am, and to be able to stay in that situation. And that's hard. You know, I, I know for me, I, I can't do it. There are many times I can't do it. When I think of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, I go bananas you know, inside. And uh, uh, so it's hard. And yet there are times when I'm at work and somebody does something that isn't you know, helpful, I'm able to get that equanimity and, and, and say, okay, where do we go from here? Um, so it's... I think for us to expect ourselves to be totally, totally, you know, uh, compassionate all the time, I don't think that's 
that's realistic until we get to a certain level of of practice. But where we are now at the level of practice I am now, I'm going to go back and forth. And I guess I just have to accept that. It's not that I, it's a good thing, but I have to work on making it happen more often. Well, there's a lot there that you said. For me personally, it's easier to be um, compassionate to like Mitch McConnell and all that than someone who might shake me down and put a gun in my face and want my stuff. But that's just a side comment. What I really wanted to um, speak to is you saying that we might not be compassionate. We might be able to be compassionate all the time once we have a certain um, evolution. But that's the thing about the circular development. Um, I think I'm not a Buddha, but I think the only way you could be compassionate in every situation all the time is if you were a Buddha. And even bodhisattvas are not Buddhas. So even bodhisattvas may not be compassionate sometimes. Um, but I just want to point that out again, that the idea that somehow we could be compassionate all the time in this realm, that is one of duality because we don't exist all the time in a realm of pure emptiness because we would not be able to function in the life that we're in right now. Mm. So there, there is, um, you know, and this is brought up a lot in our practice, in our lineage, that pivot point between that uh, duality and non-duality that we actually inhabit most of the time. Mm-hmm. or that we're trying to inhabit. Um, but anyway, I just want to stress that we shouldn't think that we could be compassionate all the time in every situation, that we're doing ourselves personally a disservice if we believe that could happen for us. Yeah, it's funny. Tigan said to me not too long ago, as I was, were in, in Dokusan, and he said, I have to forgive myself for being human. Right. And, and that's, I think, that that's very key. Yes. Thank you, David. Thank you. I think Carol Corey had her hand up at, at one point. Carol, do you have a question? Well, I was just going to um, get back to this invocation idea, because I think the these sutras are trying to tell us we don't have to do all this ourselves. And... Um, that's that's the other side of all this effort that um, the Kanzion is is uh, saying that we can call upon uh, upon her and upon these beings as a support. And I think the other thing they can do is kind of um, help us to call the Buddha to mind. You know, you can replace these fears and thoughts with. Uh, other ideas and words just by invoking and uh, keeping keeping them in in mind. So I, th- I think it, it works both ways and we don't have to, they're there for us and we don't have to do all this ourselves. That's what I've been getting from the Lotus Sutra study and some of these other sutras that they're amazing. I'm just appreciating so much recently. They're there. Yeah, thank you, Carol. And and as you know, 
because um, Carol is involved in the, the study group, mm -hmm. and I've said this in the group, that um, the one thing um, of this Buddhist practice that I appreciate the most in my own life is the feeling that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I generally don't feel alone in my life the way I used to before I started sitting zazen. And I, and I can't prove to you, but I have faith from the experience I have on the cushion that I am not alone. And, and that feeling goes with me as I move throughout the world. And I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful for that. And Carol, thank you so much for bringing that up again. And I believe Tygen has a comment. Um, hi, Paula. Thank you for a great talk. Hi, Tygen. Um, uh, you mentioned having a gun in your face. So I have a story. This happened a long time ago when I was living at San Francisco Zen Center and working at Zen Center's Tassajara Bakery and working in the early morning shift, like going there three or four in the morning. Um, and I was standing at the bus stop to, to go to get a bus up to the hate. And uh, two guys came and um, one of them held a gun in my face and wanted my money. And this is not a story about me. This is a story about Zazen. I, I, I didn't think about Kanzeon. I just saw that this guy was kind of shaking with his gun and with holding his gun in my face. And then I, I saw that he was more afraid than I was. And I just said, uh, be cool. It's okay. I'll give you my, give you my money. And, and uh, he didn't shoot me. <laughs> and uh, I gave him my wallet and uh, they, they ran away. Um, so again, this is not a story about me doing something. It's about Zazen because I've been sitting lots of Zazen then. And, uh, but I, but I felt him and his fear and his need. And anyway, later on the police came and we uh, looked around the projects and I got my wallet back the cash was gone. But anyway, um, it's just, you, you mentioned a gun in your face and it was, it was only about, you know, Paul mentioned empathy. I just really felt his um, fear and need. So just to share that anecdote. Thank you, Tygen. Dora. Yeah. Um, I, I thought your, what you were saying was very powerful, like at this particular moment, um, like especially about this circularity, um, because you were talking about how you kind of build these qualities and you think, you're at a moment where everything is, um, like you have all of the cylinders going, and it just really brought me back to March of last year when I, I know I felt like I had all of the cylinders going and um, was practicing as a week, and everything was very, and then just, you know, everything that happened obviously was very, um, it was one of those moments, I think, when you were talking about dragons, and it's like, well, you know, there's, there have been moments that I think everyone's had recently where we had kind of just those dragons like in our day to day. And, um, and I think I focused a lot on the compassion towards others in that moment. And um, something that I think is interesting is in that I think I kind of lost the compassion for myself. And that <laughs> I think 
um, is part of kind of what led to that, you know, challenge of using those cylinders and, um, and you know, obviously like self, like, but um, I don't know, I just think that that's interesting for me to think about is that, like compassion towards like food, you know, mm -hmm. and um, how that impacts kind of just like having those perfections just in the everyday life. Um, so, you know, being back here, it's like the circle just keeps going and I'm just like thinking of how compassion works in different ways. And, yeah. Thank you, Dora. Yeah, some of us, um, and I think some of us at certain times, we beat ourselves up a lot. And I know even for me personally, I never really felt compassion from a spiritual teacher until I started practicing Buddhism. And at the time, I was practicing with a Tibetan group, and it was one of the first times I ever sat down with a teacher to talk about practice. And I brought up my frustration that I actually brought up in this talk. Like, I feel like I was getting stuff, and, you know, I'm, I feel more calm and patient and whatever the case was, generous. And then all of a sudden things happen in my life and I feel like I've never practiced at all. And he just, um, it almost makes me cry thinking about it because he just reached across the table and grabbed my arm. And he said, Paula, don't you understand? It's circular. It's not linear. It's okay. You're doing fine. It's just circular. And I had no one ever in my life. And part of this is probably because my Catholic upbringing and I, I don't, I don't bash Catholicism because I, there's so much of it that I love, but I never felt that kind of compassion from a spiritual teacher that what I was doing was okay. And if I was failing somehow, it's okay. And, um, that was so powerful for me. And it, and it introduced me to the concept that I can maybe not be so hard on myself because that's, and a lot of it has to do with, um, your place in your family too you know, the expectations of your family for you as a child. And so I'm a person that has always like, I have to be the one to do everything right, whether that's real or not. That's how I perceived it. So having someone offer me the gift of compassion for myself was extremely powerful. And I can say I was a very angry person until I learned how to be compassionate to myself, angry about the world around me, you know, and that has a lot to do with each other, I have found through time. So thank you, Dora. Thank you. Oh, there was, there was a, a comment in chat saying that the question was, was hard to hear. Would, would, you, would, would either of you mind maybe summarizing the question for the people on Zoom? Uh, Dora was talking. Do you want to summarize your? Sure. Um, yeah, I was just, can you hear me? Can we get a thumbs up if you can hear okay? Um, Hello. <laughs> I'm going to actually move the, the snowball toward you. Here comes this spaceship thing. Okay. Um, I, my question was just essentially, or comment, I guess, was essentially about um, the circularity um, that Paula was talking about with the kind of building up the perfections and thinking you have everything down. And then with COVID last year, feeling like um, those cylinders were kind of dismantled. Um, and 
in COVID feeling very focused on compassion towards others and kind of forgetting to have compassion towards myself and how kind of focusing on that, I think has helped kind of re get the circle moving again and how I just appreciated um, being reminded of that and thinking more about it at this time. And my response was just another anecdote of how someone was able to teach me to be compassionate to myself. But I'm bum. Jane, I could swear you had your hand up. I just love doing that to Jane because she never says it. <laughs> so I don't know. We could probably take maybe one or two more comments. And then we're going to chant the chant. Because I know everyone's just so ready to chant it. <laughs> Ruben? Thank you for your talk. <clears throat> that was wonderful. Um, I'm really struck by how I sometimes get caught in this trap of uh, needing to be compassionate. And like, my understanding is Zen is not about states, right? I don't get to choose how I am or who I am because I can't control the causes and conditions that make me who I am. So like, um, in the way that equanimity is how I receive things and not being equanimous, right? Mm -hmm. And how waking up is not <laughs> being enlightened, um, but being with but in compassion is responding, right? Just responding so that when, when I'm falling apart, being compassionate to myself is just, you know, wrapping myself up and loving me, whatever I, whatever is needed, responding. I don't, I don't really see a difference in between responding and compassion, I guess. What do you think? I agree with you in the sense that um, I don't think it's good for us to try to force ourselves to respond in certain ways or feel certain ways about certain things at all. And I think if we, if we take all of this away that we're talking about and look just at Zazen, the importance of Zazen for me is that it is sometimes when we first get familiar with who we actually are and our internal state, and what is actually happening in a moment, what's coming up for us, that sometimes we don't even realize we are that person because we're so disconnected from that present moment and what's coming up for us. So I think it's important for us to get familiar with how we internally respond to, the, to our life. And the Zazen helps us do that so that then we could become honest with how we're feeling about things as we move about the world. And we're not trying to orchestrate or choreograph responses. Is that kind of um, touch, you know, what you're talking about? And I agree. Like, for example, what for me being an ordained priest, when I took precepts to wear this archetype, I, I I'm okay with people putting pressure on me to live up to certain ideals. Because through my practice, I feel I can do that. 
But at the same time, I still don't feel, if I don't feel like responding generously to something, I won't. And if I feel like saying F you to somebody, now when I, when I do that, let's say I'm out in the world and I do do that. I don't usually, but what if I do? Okay. When I do that in that, there's a moment, there's a pause that I know I'm a Buddhist priest. And if I say F you to this person, it might come back to bite me in the butt. Because I took public vows, I wear a public archetype that says I'm not going to be that way. But sometimes if I don't feel that way in that moment, Zazen taught me the most important thing for me is to respond like that in that moment. Now, I might have to accept the repercussions of that, and I'm fully ready to accept the repercussions because of my practice. I'm not doing it because I'm not aware of what just happened inside of me when I made the decision to go F you to somebody. And of course, that happens very fast. But through the practice of Zazen, that moment, all of that is revealed in that moment, and I'm aware of it, and I'm familiar with it, and I understand what's happening. So this way I can respond honestly in the moment to things that happen without choreographing and orchestrating. If that all means it's kind of went right back to where we started. Okay. So that's what I'll say. That's what I'll say to that. <laughs> you sure, Jane? Okay. <laughs> what do you think, David? I'm quiet on Zoom, it looks like. 